Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I want to start off our time by talking about uh, Janner, the throne warden of Anira. You know, his journey as he makes his way through the forest of Glipwood. He's got Pete the Sockman with him, his Poto and Nia, and, and he's trying to avoid the, the, uh, the toothy cows and the stranders of East Bend, right? But those fangs of Dang are the worst, right? Y'all look a little bit confused. Anybody lost? Okay. Well, let's try something else then. Uh, are you with me if I say that something is inconceivable? I, you keep using that word. I do not think that means what you think it means. Have fun storming the castle, boys. Think it'll work? It'll take a miracle. Goodbye. Any, anybody with me? Okay. A handful of people. Uh, you can, those of you who, who know that that's the Princess Bride, we can be friends. The rest of you, you have homework to do. Go and watch The Princess Bride, which is probably the greatest, most quotable movie uh, ever. Uh, I love it. It comes to mind way too frequently, asked Jolie and a lot of the staff members here at church. Probably three to four times a week, a quote comes to mind, and as soon as it comes to mind, it comes out of the mouth. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it, some of you are, are a little confused, though, because you didn't know what I was referencing. And if you don't know what I'm referencing, naturally, you're giving me the look that you're giving me right now, which is total confusion and blank stares. But when you know the quote and what it means, it comes to life. See, sometimes Jolie will ask me to do something, and occasionally I'll respond to her, as you wish. Which, again, if you don't know The Princess Bride, it makes no sense to you. But if you do know the movie, you know that as you wish doesn't just mean, sure, I'll do what you're asking me to do, but it actually means I love you. Of course, I'll do what you asked because I love you. And so when I say, as you wish to Jolie, because she knows what I'm referencing, th that little brief sentence explodes into greater meaning. And it makes sense. But again, then again, if you don't know it, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's very confusing. This is what happens a lot of times when we come and we read Scripture because the authors of Scripture will regularly quote and allude to other parts of Scripture. And they don't always tell you that they're doing it. In the way that many of us will just drop a movie quote in the middle of a conversation and not tell you, hey, I'm about to quote The Princess Bride. We just quote it, right? Scripture authors do the exact same thing. They will, they will reference other parts of Scriptures but not tell you and assume that you as the reader and the listener will know what they're referencing and take all of that information surrounding the original movie, so to speak, and import it into that very moment and have it make more sense. Of course, again, if you don't know what it is, you're confused and you start to make up ideas as to what it means. So when I start talking about toothy cows and fangs of dang, that's because you didn't know what that was because you might not know the Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson. But if you do know that, well, you have an accurate picture in your mind. But those of you who, I don't know, if, has anybody read that? Anybody familiar with that? Yes, there were five people in the first service. Nobody in this one. Great story, really fun story. Four book series. Uh, we're about half, we're almost done with book two as a family. But if you did know what that is, you have an accurate picture. And all of you were making some picture in your mind as to what in the world I was talking about. And I promise you, you were wrong. But since you didn't know, you just had to do something with it. But again, we do that a lot when we come to the scripture, especially the book of Revelation. 
Because what John does so often throughout the whole book is he quotes and alludes to other parts of Scripture, and he uses those other parts to describe the vision that he sees. He sees visions that God gives him. And to describe it, he grabs pieces from other parts of Scripture, especially the parts oftentimes that we don't give a lot of attention to. And so you're confused and you try to guess what's going on. Which is why I want just a little quick aside note, which is why it's so important that we regularly read through all of Scripture. Not just the parts that are most comfortable or that are easier or that are familiar, but reading through all of Scripture. And so get yourself a good study Bible. There's lots of them out there. Get yourself a good study Bible and, and a Bible reading plan. You can, McShane has a reading plan, uh, the Bible Project. Just search the internet for a Bible reading plan. Maybe you have an app on your phone that actually has Bible reading, uh, a plan laid out for you. And read through the Bible every year, every two years, every whatever. Just make it a regular habit of reading through it and you'll find that Scripture comes to life. And so as we come to this morning's passage, Revelation 21 verses 22 to 27, which you just heard read on the video. Um, we're, we're jumping into the middle of this vision that we've been studying for a couple of weeks here, where, where Jesus is, is going to return. And John's seeing this vision of what it will be like when Jesus returns and renews and restores all of this broken, sin-cursed universe. He's promising to make everything new, wipe away tears, eliminate death, be among his people. And in this passage, Revelation 21, again, you just heard it, but since there's a good chance you didn't know that he was quoting another movie, so to speak, because many of us aren't familiar with that. So to help us understand what he's doing in that Revelation passage, we actually need to go back and watch the first movie, so to speak. So that would be Isaiah chapter 60. So if you have your Bibles or on your device or, or a hard copy with you, I invite you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 60. And we're going to try and understand exactly what John is doing in Revelation 21 to help us really understand the movie that he's quoting here. Isaiah chapter 60 is, is obviously a part of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a, a book that spans a large period of time. It's actually a lot of really dark and hard times in Israel's history uh, where there's exile and discipline because God's people have rejected the Lord. But at a certain point in the book, it tar- starts to take a, a shift towards hope. And towards uh, the day in which the Messiah, God's anointed one, this promised warrior king is going to come and he's going to renew everything. All of Israel's hopes for a happily ever after are placed on this person, on this Messiah. And Isaiah 60 is part of the picture of this happily ever after, which comes about from the Messiah. So let's read just the first three verses together. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It starts off by acknowledging that darkness covers the earth. Darkness is over all the peoples. And throughout the entire Bible and really all literature and all cinematography and all storytelling, dark and light are stood in contrast to one another. And darkness is this embodiment, this symbol of all that is bad. 
all the, the darkness, it, it, darkness, I'm sorry, is all the evil and sin and fear and sorrow and death, destruction. That's how it's used. Earlier in the book, Isaiah uh, chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You can see them being paralleled. In fact, J, uh, John, 1 John 1 describes God as light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 6 says he lives in unapproachable light, meaning God's perfection, his goodness, is so far beyond us. It's so next level that we can't even approach him. There is not a hint of darkness in God at all. There is no evil, no sorrow, no sin inside of God. And this darkness, which was a reality in Isaiah's day, I, I don't have to go through much effort to remind us and explain and prove to you that darkness is still a reality today in our world. Reflect back on your week. Reflect back on the news that has hit and scandals and corruption. Think about all the hatred and how everyone is just angry. And there's acts of violence, injustice, greed, selfishness. I can just keep going on and on. We live in a world that has been broken by sin, and as a result, we experience terrible diagnosis. We have friends and family that have died. We have loved ones who are, who are experiencing cancer and battling that. And it could just keep going on and on. There's broken relationships. There's darkness in all different forms and to varying degrees. And we know it. And we feel it in the depths of our soul. And we hate it. We all long for the day when the darkness will be gone. Where grief is over. Where joy is all we experience. But the darkness is not just outside of us, is it? If we're honest, and we take a moment to reflect, we know that there's darkness inside as well. It's not just a threat from out there, but the threat is inside. Maybe this week you've had some of your own personal prejudices exposed. Maybe you just keep having the same sin over and over and over again, and it feels like there's no traction feels like you just can't get out from it. Whether it's lust or anger, jealousy or hatred or contempt or just arrogance and self-centeredness, we know that darkness is a threat both from the outside and from within. This is the reality for us that darkness covers over the people. And we get it. Verse 2, though, has one really important word. It's the word but. But is one of the most important words in the entire Bible. Because what happens is Isaiah goes, there is darkness over the world. You all know it, but God. It happens throughout all of Scripture. Here's the reality, but God is not willing to leave us in that reality, but God is coming to intervene. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. In place of darkness... God is bringing light. This is what he's promising. So what is this going to be like? What, what does that mean? What is this metaphor that light is now invading darkness? Jump down with me, in, still in Isaiah 60, to verse 17 and following. As he gives a little bit of a description of what light over darkness will look like. He says, instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. And silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. You get this picture of blessing. You get this picture of wealth instead of 
poverty. You get this picture of strength instead of weakness. And I will make peace your governor, verse 17 continues, and well-being your ruler. True peace, shalom, wholeness, well-being. That's what light means. Verse 18, no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No more violence, no more ruin, no more hurting one another. This is what light means. Verse 19, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. And your moon will never wane, will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. See, if darkness embodies this suffering, this poverty, this shame, this violence, this sorrow, sin then what light means, God is promising that he is going to bring a day in which all of that is gone. Which sorrow is gone in which all the people will be righteous. But notice how that comes. Verse 2 tells us the source, but the Lord rises upon you. You see, God is promising to bring light into darkness, but he doesn't say, try harder. Figure out a way to get rid of darkness. This is not a call to try harder, but is a a call to dependence and trust. This isn't a mustering up of enough strength to overcome darkness, but the help has to come from from outside of us. See, there is no politician that can bring about an end to darkness. There are no laws that they can legislate to get rid of darkness. There is no relationship you can have to put a buffer between you and sadness and the darkness in this world. There is no financial security. There is no experience. There is no person. Nothing is strong enough to overcome the darkness in our worlds. And you all know it. We've tried. It just doesn't work. The help has to come from outside this broken world, which is why this promise is so important. We see that God is promising, I'm going to bring the light. I will bring what drives out darkness once and for all. That's the promise he's making. That's the movie, so to speak, in Isaiah 60. And if that's what he's quoting, if that's what he's referring to, let's go back to Revelation 21. So turn there with me, if you would, and see if we can make a little more sense of what he's doing uh, in in this quote by using this. And as I read this, I want you to pay attention to not just the similarities in it, but I want you to see if you can catch a difference in the way that he uses Isaiah 60 and the way that he quotes it. So here's Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written 
in the Lamb's book of life. You can hear a lot of the similarities that come through from Isaiah chapter 60, right? This is God's plan to bring light into darkness. No more night, no more need for the sun or the moon or other sources of light because God comes in and his presence brings light that overwhelms the darkness and drives it out so there is no more night. Look at the way that he describes it. The gates are left wide open. No longer will you need to shut the gates, right? Every ancient city had gates so they could close them at night to protect them from invading armies or thieves. But not necessary in this. Because all of those external forces of darkness, of evil, they're gone in Revelation 21. They're gone. There is no external threat. There's no need to worry about protection. We saw that in Isaiah 60. Then it also says that nothing impure will ever enter it. Verse 27, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Which means that not only is there not an external threat, but there's not an internal threat either. Because if you and I, those who, are, who have been united with the Lamb by faith, who are written in the Lamb's book of life, if this is our eternal dwelling, and yet nothing impure and deceitful or shameful will enter it, then guess what that means for you? That it's no longer a part of who you are. Which means that all of those things that you look at in your life, that you just feel like you are never going to grow in. You just feel like those things about you, the selfishness, the, the, the arrogance, the rudeness, the, 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 the addictions, whatever it is in your world that you feel like you are never going to. It's always going to be a part of you. You're just never going to experience victory over. If you're by faith united with Christ, the promise is that one day nothing impure, nothing shameful, nothing deceitful will be in you because this is where you'll be. It's like God's lightness, his perfection has transformed you and pushed out the darkness from even inside of you. We begin to reflect him more perfectly. We are light because he is light. This is the same promise that you found throughout the rest of the passages we've been looking at uh, this last month, where there is no longer any sea, there's no longer any curse, there's no more death, mourning, or crying. It's all the description, the promise of God saying, darkness does not have final word. I'm coming, and I'm going to drive out all of that. And is that not what we want is that not what you, your heart longs for? Why you feel that ache inside when, when, when grief is real to you? When, you? when you watch the news and you're just brokenhearted by all that you see, when you recognize the struggles that you continually battle against, you just long for the day when this is gone, when this becomes reality, when all that we've ever hoped for happily ever after becomes a reality. But the question is then, how, does God, how is God going to bring this about? And the answer lies in one of the ways that he changes and modifies a quote from the original movie, so to speak. Look at verse 23 with me. Most of this is going to be a direct quote from Isaiah 60, but he changes just a little bit at the end. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. We're good there. But then look how he ends it. And the lamb is its lamp. You won't find that in Isaiah 60. 
It's an important change. In other words, John's trying to drive our attention to here comes the light, and what's its source? The lamp. That's where we get light from. But what is the lamp? The lamp is a lamb. It's all about this creature. How is he going to bring this about? It's all about this lamb. And if you're familiar with the whole story of Revelation, the whole book, we've only been looking at the last two chapters, but if you know the whole story, you know that the lamb is at the center point of this whole story, this whole series of visions. Back in Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John begins to see these visions. And inside, he is so broken and distraught. He's weeping and weeping because no one can be found to bring about God's plan. No one can bring light into this world that eliminates darkness. No one can bring the renewal and restoration that we all long for. In Revelation 5 language, no one is worthy to open the scrolls. Seems impossible. Darkness is too strong. No one seems worthy. And then one of the elders who's around the throne of God says, No, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John turns and he expects to see a lion, which is the warrior king. This, this symbol of power and strength. How are we going to drive out darkness? He expects to see strength, right? But what does he see? He sees a lamb. A lamb that looked like it had been slain. A lamb drenched in its own blood that looked like it had been sacrificed. And if you start to know the whole story of the Bible, this whole thing explodes with meaning, doesn't it? Because you know that in the temple, in order for Israel to maintain their relationship with God and to maintain the presence of God, for them to be as close as they could possibly be, which was still at a distance, right? God's presence came into and entered and and lived in the Holy of Holies. One little cube, we talked about it last week, one little section is where God's glory would reside and it was blocked off by a thick curtain so that no one could get near to protect the people. But in order to maintain even that mediated relationship, they had to continually sacrifice to atone, animals to atone for their sin. And it was by the blood of these lambs that they were able to do so. But these lambs were never enough to actually drive out the darkness. They just kind of covered over it. But then a day comes when the promise that God made in Isaiah 60 became true and that God and his light rises upon you and his glory appears over you, where God himself comes to earth and Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God and the light of the world, comes into this world, but rather than being accepted, the world rejects him. John 3 says it's because they love their darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And the very ones whom Jesus came to save rejected the light of the world and hung him on a cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he allowed himself to be overwhelmed by all of the darkness. All of the darkness that you and I have experienced, he took it on himself. Luke 23 says that about noon, on the day of his crucifixion, while Jesus is hanging on a cross, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For three hours, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Matthew 27 tells us that he also cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus' darkness that he experienced was not just a physical lack of the sun, but what that's symbolizing is the real darkness that Jesus experienced. The darkness that you and I, because of our sin and our rebellion and rejection of God, the darkness that you and I deserve, which is to have the God who is light and in him is no darkness at all, who lives in unapproachable light, he turned his back on his son. Because in that moment, Jesus bore in himself all of our sin and all of the evil that would separate us from him. And when he cries out, it is finished. The veil that separated us from God's presence was torn from the top to the bottom. And God screams out loud, come on in. I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. And I will go to any length to make that a reality. The light of the world experienced darkness that you and I will never, by faith in Christ, will never have to experience. The gospel is that Jesus traded places with you and I so that we could be in the presence of God who is light and in him is no darkness at all. The one in whom is the fullness of joy. What you have really longed for the whole time. And the good news of this, the reason we have assurance of this is that in the third day, remember how John's vision was? He saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. The only reason it might look like it had been slain, but is a little confusing, is because why? Because the lamb's alive. Because the lamb took our darkness and sin and took it to the grave, but in victory over it, he left it powerless to himself and rose in victory and light. And now, by faith, if you are united with Christ, if you're one with Jesus, if you belong to him and he belongs to you, then his victory belongs to you which means the darkness that had no hold over him has no hold over you. His victory is your victory. And happily ever after is not just your guaranteed future, but it's a reality now because by faith he gives you his spirit and he puts his presence in you so that wherever you go, he actually says, you are a temple. You are my temple. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And his, his spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, that one day there will be a day when darkness is gone. Why? Because the lamb was slain and is now alive again. And it's through his sacrificial act of love. That's how darkness is moved. Not through acts of power, but by acts of humility and sacrificial love for others. It's the gospel. And I think we also have to be very careful here. Because as consumer-minded Americans, it is very tempting for us to look at all the benefits that Christ offers. No sin, no suffering, no tears, no death. And to idolize the gifts that he gives over the giver. It's so tempting for us to be more interested in what God can do for me than having God himself. Because something far greater than a healed body, something far greater than no grief, something far greater than any blessing you could imagine is in this passage. And it's the fact that there is no temple. That the mediated presence of God 
now can fill the whole earth. Now you get to experience in this moment what your heart has always longed for, whether you know it or not, whether you have the words for it or not, what you have been created for is to be in the presence of God with nothing hindering that. Listen to this question that John Piper asked. It's such an important question to meditate on. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and with all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted with no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with this heaven if Christ was not there? Because if the answer to that is yes for you, if you would be satisfied with a heaven without Jesus, if you are more interested in the gift than the giver, then the hard reality is you will miss out on this happily ever after. He is heaven. He is the prize. All the rest of it just comes with him. It's the whipped cream and cherry on top. If the only time you come to Jesus is when you need something and you treat him like a vending machine, then not only are you missing out on the the happily ever after that's to come, but you're missing out on what's available to you right now. That happily ever after begins now, that heaven begins now in part, but will only get better with time. Why? Because you can have his presence now. There is no temple. One day we will receive by faith. What we receive now by faith will become sight. That's what your heart is longing for. And the beautiful thing is that no matter where you are, if your heart resonates with that and you go, yes, I cannot wait to see my Savior face to face. Or if your heart actually says, you know what, I've really just been interested in the stuff he gives me. Whether you've been walking with Christ for your entire life, it seems, or whether you still have a ton of questions and aren't sure who this whole Jesus, what this whole Jesus thing is about, the amazing thing is he still gives you the exact same invitation. Pastor Jen's going to preach on this passage next week. But here's the promise, that he, here's the offer that he says. He says, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Come. Come and enjoy what you were made to enjoy. Come be found in the presence of God. Knowing that one day, darkness will be driven out. What you believe by faith will become sight. Let's turn to him together now. Father, it's so humbling that you would think of us, that we who were your enemies, you would give your life, Jesus, to make us your friends. We who, who, who pushed you away and said we want nothing to do with you, you became like us, experiencing the darkest darkness that we could ever imagine beyond our comprehension in order to bring us close. God, there is no one like you someone of that kind of love and dedication, we we just don't know what to do with. All we can say is that we love you and we want you. 
We want to be with you. So we ask that you would draw us to yourself, that you would show us yourself. Thank you that you don't like to hide, but you love to reveal yourself to us. Lord, may we grow to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we go into this world as your light, because your light lives in us, Lord, may those around us taste and see that you are good and experience a little bit of your light through their interactions with us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.